kind of shaken into reality. Sometimes it's about your whole life. Sometimes it's about an area of your life. Sometimes it's about a relationship in your life. But you see it with a, a new set of eyes. And here's the deal that I'd like you to know right up front this morning about aha moments. When you have one, it will challenge your current way of thinking. It may even change your perspective about something. But it's very important for you to know this. It doesn't necessarily mean that your life will change for the better. The outcome of an aha moment is largely dependent on whether or not you will embrace that truth. Embrace it to the point that it actually transforms your life. As we're going to see in this series, there were a lot of people in Scripture who had a lot of aha moments with God. And as you will see, some of them embraced those moments and some of them did not. I also want you to know that I can't stand here, Robbie can't stand here over the next few weeks and say, let's have an aha moment with God. It just doesn't happen that way. But what we can do, as you saw in the video, is that we can open our eyes. We can ask God to help us see truth and respond to that truth in the appropriate way. Today, we're going to start by looking at an aha moment in the life of a very pivotal character in Scripture. I will guarantee you that every person in this room is going to know who this person is. And before we read the passage that's kind of pertinent for today, I'd like, if you would, to take out the card that was in your seat. You may be actually sitting on it right now. And I'd like you to take that card that has the light bulb on it. Find something to draw with. Maybe you can borrow a pen or pencil. There should be some in the seat backs there. This is going to be a real simple assignment. Very simple. I'm going to ask you to draw a line in the middle of that card so you have two halves. Just a line down the center. And on the left side of that line, I want you to answer this question if you would. If someone had been assigned to follow you every moment of your life, Since January 1st, what is the primary word or phrase that they would use to describe you? Let me say it again. If an invisible person that you could not see was assigned to follow you every moment of your life since the new year began, what is a word or phrase that they would use to describe you? Okay, now... This is only going to be between you and God and the people peeking over your shoulder, okay? Not going to turn them in. But I'm going to ask you to be brutally honest here, okay? Based on the last 10 days of your life, what do you think they would say? I'm going to ask you to hold that. Now, again, there's a lot of answers. I mean, they could be answers like anxious or energetic or manipulative, wise, like Nettie, grateful. I mean, it's endless, really, the possibilities. And I want you to hold that card. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. Right now, we're going to read the scripture passage that's very pertinent for today's aha moment. It's found in Mark chapter 1. And it reads like this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
Now, I told you that you're going to know the character very well today who had his aha moment because that character is Jesus. If you don't know him, you're in a great place today to find him. Jesus himself experienced an aha moment with God. The scene that I just read actually took place right before Jesus heads into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. It's a launching pad, if you will, uh, at least in part for his public ministry. I want you to think about the things that Jesus would face in the next three years of his life. All the doubters, all the scoffers, all the enemies, all the accusations, all the betrayal, all the pain, all the darkness, all the sins of this world on his shoulder. Yet I want to tell you what I think it was that kept Jesus moving forward. I think at least in part... It was these words that he heard from his father this day. When Jesus came up out of the water, this is what he hears. This is my son whom I love. It was that voice that defined Jesus in his life. It was that voice that he would turn to when all the other voices in his life tried to get him to become someone or something that he was never intended to be. I think Jesus discovered that day what most of us search for our our entire lives. He found out how God the Father really felt about him. And then he lived his life based on that relationship. You know, in the church world, there's a lot of words that are kind of buzzwords. One of those words is grace. We talk about amazing grace. We talk about being saved by grace. We talk about the grace of God being poured out on our lives. But I don't think we really understand how vital it is that we live in grace. Grace is not something you just receive, friends, when you invite Jesus into your life to be forgiver and savior of your life. Grace is how God views you from the moment you are created. Grace is how God feels about you throughout your life. Grace is how we're supposed to live. Grace is how we're supposed to love. Grace is supposed to be the way that we leave this earth. But here's the problem. Somewhere along the line, we begin to listen to the voices in the crowd. And they begin to cover up the voice of the Father. And because of that, we do not feel like grace is enough. There's a great story by Bax Locato. It illustrates this. I want to take a moment to read it. It's a little longer than normal, so just bear with me if you would. The story goes that the Wemmicks were small wooden people. All the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village, and each Wemmick was different. Some wore hats, others wore coats, but all were made by the same carver and all lived in the same village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers, and they had a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. Those with smooth wood and fine paint always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, The Wemmicks would give dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. 
Still others knew really big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else to get another star. Others, though, could do very little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of those. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around him and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then he would try to explain why he fell. He would say something silly and the Wemmicks would give him even more dots. After a while, he had so many dots, he didn't even want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in water. And then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and just give him a dot for no reason at all. He deserves a lot of dots. The wooden people would agree. He's not a good wooden person at all. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had lots of dots because he felt better with them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike anyone he'd ever met. She had no stars or dots at all. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for not having any dots, so they would run up and they'd give her a star, but it would immediately fall off. Others would look down on her for having no star, so they would run up and give her a dot, but it wouldn't stick either. That's the way I want it to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself, Punchinello? Go up the hill. He's right there. And with that, the women with no stickers turned and she skipped away. Punchinello walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and he stopped in the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The the stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello? The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I try really hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other women think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give you stars or dots? They're women just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinella. All that matters is what I think. And I think you're pretty special. Punchinella laughed. Me special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My pain is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders and spoke very softly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. 
Every day I've been hoping you would come to me, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no mark, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her, Eli? The maker spoke softly because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them, Punchinello. The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it'll take time. You got a lot of marks right now. For now, just come and see me every day and let me remind you how much I care about you. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the women walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart, he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. I want to tell you, there are two ways that you will live in this world, friends. You can either live based on performance and trying hard. Or you can live based on this amazing grace that flows to people who do not deserve it, but desperately need it. Someone has noted that justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace is receiving something you'll never ever deserve. Grace is the purest gift in the universe. It is a gift not from man to God, but from God to man. Grace always flows down. And because of grace, I am. I have a new standing from death to life. And along with that, I get a new identity. I'm going to tell you a secret about me today. Some of you didn't know this. I'm going to tell you what people used to call me. Are you interested? You know what they used to call me? Sinner. Some do still. And that doesn't mean that I don't sin anymore. Far from it. But that used to be my identity. I was a sinner as far away from God as you could be. Now this is going to blow you away. So hang on to this. You know what the Bible calls me now? You know what the Bible, the word they use to call me? Saint. 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 Okay. Some of you got Catholic backgrounds. It's blowing you away right now. Okay. Do you know what the Bible calls you? Who used to be far from God and now you're in a relationship with him. You know what he calls you? It's not a trick question. Saint. It may shock you, but we were called sinners. But now we're called saints. We're not saints by our religious merits or by our hard work. A saint is not someone who has earned that lofty title by living some magnificent life. It describes all believers, the Bible does, as saints. Being a saint doesn't reflect any amount of self-greatness. It just means we live by grace. Now here's the thing. All throughout the Bible it teaches that believers, followers of Jesus can still sin. We make mistakes. We do things we shouldn't do and we don't do things we should do. But sinner is our old identity. We are set apart now by the grace of God. See, I'm new because I'm full of grace. We're not trying to become saints. We are saints. Now, in no way does that deny the fact that we struggle with sin. 
you do and certainly I do. But we've got to remember this and this is very important for today. What we do does not determine who we are. Believing who we are in Christ determines what we do. I was a sinner. I was saved by grace. I am no longer a sinner. I am now a saint. One who struggles with sin. But less and less and less these days. I am no longer identified by the way I was once enslaved by sin. Now I'm identified by the one who rescued me from all that stuff. This is why Paul says this is the grace in which I now move and live and breathe and find my new identity. And I'm going to tell you, this is where some of your aha moments need to come. People, even Christians, let me say this again, even Christians, saints, can live their entire lives believing and living as if God still has it in for you. He is just waiting to catch you red-handed. So he can take that big hammer on that wood bench. Some of you are thinking God's not for me anymore. If you knew some of the stuff I did or some of the stuff I thought. There's no way. But there's something. Listen, there's something about that moment. I don't know how to fully explain this. But there's something about that moment when the light bulb comes on and you truly see that grace is enough. Friends, it is enough for your past, it is enough for your present, and it is enough for your future. You are now no longer defined by your mistakes or your sins or your behavior. Now you're defined by your sonship and daughtership with God. We have a new identity. And if we're going to follow Jesus like he calls us to do, then we really ought to live like he sees us. Not the way we see ourselves and not the way certainly other people see us. A long time ago I gave you this list. I'm going to quickly run through it again. If you'd like a copy of it I can send it to you later. Just let me know. But I want you to let these just kind of wash over you again as you listen to God speaking directly to you. This is as if God is talking to you as his son or daughter. This is your identity in Christ. God says to you, you are created. Now this has huge implications because I hear people often say, I'm not sure why I was even born. Friends, let me tell you something. You weren't just born. You were created. You're sitting next to a masterpiece. Better yet, you are one of those masterpieces. God has planned for you to do good things even before you were born. I'll tell you something else. You're chosen. Paul says you're the people of God. He loved you and chose you for his own. I don't know how many of you ever got picked last on the playground. I don't know how many of you ever got to go to the prom. But I want to tell you, God said, I pick you first. First. I'll tell you something else. You're seen. You're noticed. Some people wonder if they ever get noticed. They stand in a crowd and yet they seem invisible. God is saying here, he watches you. Listen, you are the pupil of his eye. You are the, you're in the pupil of his eye. It's not a peripheral thing. It's not a glance every now and then. He's concentrating on you. You're noticed. You're seen. He says you're complete. 
Long before Tom Cruise said it to Renee Zellweger. Paul said, you complete me. For in Christ the fullness of God lives in a human body. And you are complete through your union with Christ. Romans 8 says, you are victorious. It says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now listen, what kind of things are we victorious over? Is it every pain? Is it every problem of life? Is it every heartache in life? No, not necessarily. It is anything that would attempt to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Anything that would make you think that you aren't forgiven enough or good enough to live this kind of life. Paul says we are victorious over that now. You're called. Why did God call you? Because you deserved it? Of course not. Paul says to Timothy, he saved us and called us to be his own people. Not because of what we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. You are forgiven. Some of you still walk around wondering if God has forgiven you about something that happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. Folks, you have to settle this. So there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. You are free. Robbie's going to talk about this next week. One of the primary things a relationship with Jesus brings you is an identity that is described as freedom. If you think Christianity is, you know, a restrictive and confining, then you don't really understand Christianity. You're accepted. Here's what we want to know. It's a five-word phrase that we all think about. Do I matter to anyone? You know what Paul said? Accept one another then for the glory of God as Christ accepted you. And finally, you are loved. Now here's the deal. Before you read this last scripture, I want you to answer this silently to yourself. Is there anything, anything that will stop God from loving me? I want you to think about your answer to that. Here's what Romans said. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers. Neither the present nor the future. Neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of grace you're accepted. Because of grace you're secure. Because of grace you're significant. Because of grace you're God's friend. Because of grace, listen to me, you're his child. And I can't help but think that if some people in this room would just begin to embrace that. And you would renew your minds with that on a daily basis. That that's who you are because of grace. You would start to behave differently. And try, instead of trying to behave our way into our identity, if we would embrace our identity and start to behave like God says we are, it would help us live much freer and lighter. I want to tell you about somebody who had that aha moment in their life. Philip Yancey tells the story. And we'll close with this. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents have been old-fashioned. They tend to overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you. She screams at her dad when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. 
So that night, she acts on a plan that she has rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Detroit Tigers play. And because newspapers in Traverse City reported lurid details of gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's the last place on the earth her parents would look for her. California, maybe Florida, but definitely not Detroit. Her second day in the city, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He gets her a place to stay. He gives her some pills and they make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month and two months, even a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. And she lives in a penthouse and she orders room service whenever she wants. And occasionally she thinks about her folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring She can almost hardly believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would ever mistake her for a child. After a year, the first shallow signs of illness appear. And it's amazing how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much because all the money really goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. And sleeping is really the wrong word because a teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. And one night as she lays awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. And she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs up tight underneath her and shivers on the newspaper As she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory. And a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City. When a million cherry trees bloom at once. God, why in the world did I ever leave? And pain stabs her heart. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything in the world. More than anything, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls and three straight connections with the answer machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make those stops between Traverse City and And Detroit. And during that time she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Should she have waited another day so she could talk with them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should give them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between the worries 
and the speech she's prepared for her dad. I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault, dad. It's all my fault. She says those words over and over and over, her throat tightening. She hasn't apologized to a person in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. She walks into that bus terminal not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of that terminal is a computer-generated banner banner that just says, Welcome home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares at him, tears quivering in her eyes. She begins the speech, Dad, I'm sorry. And he interrupts her and he says, Hush, child. We've got no time for that. You'll be late for the party back home. More people are waiting for you there. I want to make this as clear as I've ever made anything in my life from this stage. That is the heart of the Father for you. And whatever you've done, it does not matter. The only voice you need to hear is the voice that Jesus heard the day he came out of that river. This is my son. This is my daughter. Whom I love. If you have never had that aha moment with God, I pray you will sometime soon, maybe even right now. Grace is enough. We're going to reflect on that in these last few moments. And now it's time to take out those cards again. The card that you had earlier. On the left side, you wrote how someone might feel about you or how they viewed you if they had followed you since January 1st. But now... We're going to move to the right side of that card. And over the next 60 seconds of your life, I want you to listen for the voice of the only one who really, really matters. And that's the one who has been with you every single day, every single moment since January 1st. God the Father, how does he feel about you now? Based on what you've heard, based on what you've felt, based on what you have seen today with spiritual eyes. I want you to write the word or phrase that describes how God sees you based on this thing we call grace. I don't know what that word or phrase is for you, but I pray you have that moment with him in these next moments. Prayer of benediction. My Father, if there is anyone in this room who
who's depended on stars and stickers and dots all their life. And it's defined them to a point that they don't even know who they are anymore. I pray right now that the grace of Jesus, the overwhelming, unconditional love of the Father, would just wash over them. Wash away all those dots and all those marks, all those chips in the paint. Wash away all those performance-based accomplishments. And may they just stand clean before you, realizing that that's enough. As they open up their life and their heart to the grace and the forgiveness found in Jesus. May it create that aha moment in their life where they realize they are a new creation in Christ. And now they are who you say they are, not who others say they are. For those who are Christ followers in this room and have been living that performance-based life, I pray today would be that aha light bulb moment for them. To begin to live out of their identity. Not live and behave trying to reach that identity. May we, through the process of renewing our mind, God, realize how much you love us. We are your sons. We are your daughters. And grace really is enough. I pray now blessing upon this group, every person, every family, every life, as they go forward through this week, through this month, and through this series. May they be constantly open with their eyes, open with their ears to spiritually hear and see what you have in store for them. In Jesus' name, amen.